I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome to a new episode of the Trafe Podcast. Episode 30 for those keeping track. Sam. Yes, David? What is the Trafe Podcast? Excuse me? If I had spent the last 10 years walking around Manhattan, didn't know who I was, was bearded and wearing strange clothes, much like Namor the Submariner in the 1960s Fantastic Four comics, what would I need to know to understand this podcast I'm listening to right now? What would you need to know? You need to know that we are two individuals um, Mm -hmm. who are living in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. With you so far. Unoccupied territory. And the community radio station, CKUT 90.3 FM, has been kind enough to grant us access to their recording studio. Mm -hmm where we record a usually weekly podcast that grapples with questions of Jewish politics, Jewish news, Jewish ideas from a radical left perspective. Sam? Yes, David? What does it mean to be Jewish? (laughs) So different people at various stages in world history, or at least for the last several thousand years, have answered that question differently. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about on this episode? It's weird because you're now vacillating between real questions and questions that I'm not sure if you're being sincere about. Nothing but seriousness today. All right, great. Um, because we're uh, talking about... We're talking about anti-Semitism. Uh, but before we get to the conversation today about anti-Semitism or about a new book that talks about anti-Semitism, uh, let's schmooze for a bit, Sam. Okay. So, Sam, I know this is the time of year that you, in many ways, enjoyed the least. Yes. Uh, called the summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because you're a vampire. Yeah. Uh, is, that a, is that a thing that vampires do? Well, they can't, they can't be exposed to sunlight. Yeah, but aren't vampires vulnerable to sunlight, not yeah. the heat? Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Except the, except the days are longer, which would mean there's more sunlight, so there's less vampire time. In any case, I know you're having a hard time. Yeah, it's terrible. Sweating a lot in the studio, have to take a lot of breaks. Yeah, a lot of water. Um, if, you, if you hear some heavy sighing or sound that sounds like this, it's just Sam dealing with the heat. Yeah, and uh, send me a tweet if you feel particularly affected by deep, deep humidity. Or if you got any cool tips. David, did you ever use and or witness someone using a fan that was attached to like a rubber band that people put on their head to like cool their face? I have indeed. Yeah, just thought about it now. Anyways. So wrapping up this time of the show where we only talk about nonsense, uh, who do we have on the show today? Well, David, we have two guests. The first is a friend of the show, Mark Singh Putterman. Yeah, I think he actually has the honor of being the most frequent Trafe guest as of this episode. And one of the most prolific Trafe guest Twitterers. Uh, That's true. So he's on the show. And who else do we have? Uh, We also have Tali Ben-Daniel, who's a staff member at Jewish Voice for Peace, and who also contributed to a new book that Jewish Voice for Peace uh, recently released called On Anti-Semitism. And at the Jewish Voice for Peace conference, which we attended in the spring there was a panel discussion that focused on some of the key issues that were raised in that book. It was a very busy conference, but the following day we were able to sit down with Mark and talk a bit about some of the issues that came up on the panel that he moderated. And then after we got home and and finished reading the book, we spoke with Tali Ben-Daniel over the phone to talk a bit more about her chapter. And this book, which is titled On Antisemitism, Solidarity and the Struggle for Justice, It's a collection of essays on anti-Semitism that was edited by Jewish Voice for Peace. And the intention of this collection is to try and fill the void, the void that exists in our discussions around anti-Semitism. The fact that so often people who are doing solidarity work with struggles in Palestine are branded as anti-Semites, but also just broader conversations about what anti-Semitism is and what it looks like and how it relates to other systems of power in North America. I think this is Jewish Voice for Peace's attempt to 
to try to occupy some space in this conversation. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 21st of Sivan 5757. Are we real recording now? Yeah. Okay. Hey Mark. Hey there. Um we meet again. Face to face for once. Um could you tell folks who are listening where we're at? So we are here in Chicago at the Jewish Voice for Peace National Member Meeting. David is also here. Hello. <laughs> and I guess we wanted to just get a sense of the pretty fantastic panel that you organized yesterday, or that you moderated, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I was very graciously invited to moderate this panel celebrating the release of the book on anti-Semitism, Solidarity and the Struggle for Justice in Palestine, which is an anthology of essays that Jewish Voice for Peace has just released this weekend. And so I was invited as an outside voice to help frame the conversation. I remember reading the book that JVP put out 10 years ago about anti-Semitism, but it was 100% just, it's not anti-Zionism. And I haven't gotten through the whole book yet, but being at the panel and listening to the conversation, it seems like this is definitely going beyond it. I know that Jews for Racial and Economic Justice are also having sort of a parallel conversation about the same topic right now. Have you noticed any differences between the way the two conversations have been playing out? Or do you think it's sort of the same conversation just happening in different places? I mean, I think one of the major differences is just the the lens of each organization is quite different in that, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace their entry point into the conversation about anti-Semitism very much is from a lens of Palestine solidarity, whereas J. Fredge is coming from local racial justice fights in New York City and the ways that anti-Semitism manifests there. Uh, JVP is intervening in a more sort of global lens, which is, is very much engaging with questions of Zionism and anti-Semitism, not only in the U.S., but like specifically thinking about Israel-Palestine. Okay, so obviously we're in this new stage of trying to engage with anti-Semitism differently. What do you think still remains to be engaged with? Like, like what are some of these outstanding points that, are, that maybe haven't made their way into these better, newer conversations about anti-Semitism? I mean, I feel like in general... What's great about this book on anti-Semitism is that it disrupts the way that conversations about anti-Semitism are generally framed in mainstream Jewish commentary. And so, you know, four out of six of us on the panel yesterday were Jewish people of color and or Mizrahim. And because of that, bring very different lived experiences and lived expertise to the conversation about anti-Semitism in ways that even today, even in the post-election era, I don't see reflected in the sort of commentary that we're seeing in Haaretz or The Forward. And so I think that this book serves as a resource that really is centering voices of people who are living at the intersections of anti-Semitism and white supremacy and Ashkenazi dominance. You know, there are so many ways to tackle questions of anti-Semitism in so many different contexts in which anti-Semitism is used as distraction used to derail conversations about anti-racism or conversations about Palestine liberation. I would have loved to talk more yesterday about 
the college campus context and thinking about the tensions between you know college hillels and college social justice movements that are being led by students of color i think this is a site in which we see the different ways that folks across the aisle are trying to instrumentalize anti-Semitism uh, is manifesting in, in sort of rich and complicated ways that I'd love to unpack more. You know, I love the question that Tali Ben-Daniel poses in her chapter about what does an intersectional understanding of anti-Semitism look like. And I think in a lot of ways we're seeing Zionists try to wrap their heads around the same question and trying to weave an understanding of anti-Semitism that is largely defined by criticism of Israel into sort of this intersectional social justice discourse, trying to portray Zionists on campus as an oppressed minority in order to sort of force the hand of solidarity with racial justice movements that are happening on college campuses. I'm, I'm interested in more conversations about, you know, as we on the left build our own intersectional and anti-Zionist understanding of anti-Semitism, how do we like take away some of the power of this new Zionist approach to intersectional anti-Semitism in ways that can ground our conversations about solidarity in, in real and accountable ways to Palestine liberation. Mm -hmm. Uh, something that I'm concerned about sometimes is the ways in which a lot of the Zionist or right-wing ideas about what anti-Semitism is can easily make their way into our attempts at formulating leftist alternative frameworks. And occasionally I'm confused about aspects of these takes that bind to some of these premises. And in the conversations that you've been part of, has this come up? Like, has this confusion been a part of that conversation? I think I've been thinking about this question a lot, largely because of, of you posing it to me in past conversations that we've had. And, you know, I, I don't know that the ongoing discourse that's happening on the left around anti-Semitism really is engaging with that question of the ways, you know, this right Zionist framework of anti-Semitism as eternal and somehow transcending the specific political institutions of a given nation state are influencing the discourse on the left, and I think it is influencing discourse on the left. I, I do think that a number of the contributions to the book on anti-Semitism are um, sort of combating that lens in terms of really grounding our understanding of anti-Semitism in you know, this very specific history of white supremacy in the United States and thinking very critically about anti-blackness, slavery, and its afterlives, uh, ongoing settler colonialism in ways that this framing of anti-Semitism as transcendent erases that specificity. And I think that's an important shift that is happening and needs to continue happening. You know, Arthur Goldwag was talking yesterday on the panel about how he sees Islamophobia in many ways picking up the template of, of anti-Semitism and picking up a lot of the rhetoric of, you know, classic examples of anti-Semitism like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and transferring it onto this narrative of, you know, Muslim global conflict and civilizational conflict. And I think that that perspective is really important because we need to be grounded in the political reality of our moment and, and realize and be realistic in, in the fact that American Jews, white American Jews specifically, have accumulated the sort of social, economic, and political capital that makes them being the primary scapegoats of our current political economic crisis very unlikely. 
So Mark, one of the things that came out of the conversation yesterday, or one of the things I took away from the conversation was this kind of side conversation about the conflation of whiteness and Ashkenaziness. I don't know if I can say that, Ashkenaziness. But how do you think that that conflation, which happens a lot, even in conversations on the left, or even particularly in conversations on the left, how does that feed into the broader conversation about anti-Semitism? I, th- I think there's a tendency to talk about Ashkenaziness when we mean whiteness. You know, it, it is complicated. There, there very clearly is a reality of Ashkenazi cultural dominance in the American Jewish community in Israel and beyond. But we can't talk about one without the other. We can't talk about Ashkenazi dominance without talking about whiteness. You know, when we don't link the two, I think that that's what leads to the erasure of Ashkenazi people of color because it it assumes a false access to Ashkenazi dominance that Ashkenazi people of color simply do not have because Ashkenaziness is inherently tied up in whiteness. And so I, as a Ashkenazi Chinese American, have access to certain cultural traditions that Mizrahim and Sephardim folks don't. At the same time, I am not able to wield Ashkenazi dominance in the same way that a white Ashkenazi Jew would. Uh, And I think parallel to that is the fact that many white Sephardim and white or white passing Mizrahim are able to leverage white supremacy in ways that Ashkenazi people of color are not. And so it's very problematic to talk about an Ashkenazi, non-Ashkenazi binary or a white POC Jewish binary because there are so many intersections. You know, historically, when we talk about Jews and whiteness and racial power in the United States and in the Western Hemisphere more broadly, this binary does not play out in ways that are very useful in understanding who has had access to structural power. And so we need to be able to talk about the fact that many Sephardim were involved in the slave trade. And, you know, slavery as an institution of race making in the Western Hemisphere has allowed European Jews of various Jewish ethnicities to access whiteness and to access that power. Before, before I wrap up, a lot has gone on at this conference, <laughs> a lot packed into the three-day period. Are there like insights or takeaways that you want to share, sort of like a shkoyach to a particular takeaway? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want my first shkoyach to be an anti-shkoyach, but <laughs> I, I would offer an anti-shkoyach to... Uh, One, the Israeli government for offering a very interesting condemnation of this conference. Uh, I believe the title of the press release was JVP Hate Conference, which is very telling and in some ways encouraging, uh, you know, that the work that we're doing is on their radar. Uh, It's being taken seriously. It's being understood as a real growing and powerful movement. My shkoyach would go to Chanda Prescott-Weinstein and Rebecca Pierce, who are two black Jewish women who are in the core of the Jews of Color, Sephardi, Mizrahim caucus organizing in partnership with JVP, who have been really holding it down and doing a lot of critical work in holding us all accountable to confronting anti-blackness and really pushing these conversations about addressing whiteness in the Jewish community and within our JOCSM communities in ways that is so valuable and so difficult to do. There's so much labor there, and I want to recognize and honor that, and I've learned so much from their work. Uh, That's excellent. First Shkoyachs. Thanks again, Mark, for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Amy. We just wanted to thank you guys for the fantastic interviews you've archived. We just led a Shavuos workshop here in Atlanta, Georgia on Ashkenazi Jewish whiteness and white privilege in the United States. We edited together about 12 minutes of your interviews uh, with Karen Brodkin, Griffin Epstein, Mark Tseng Putterman, and Shoshana Brown. And it sparked a really interesting intergenerational conversation that was challenging and got people thinking about Jewish participation in white supremacy. It was especially meaningful for me to be able to bring this conversation to the community that I grew up in, which has never been a particularly radical place. So thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I'm Tali uh, Ben Daniel, and I work for Jewish Voice for Peace as the academic program manager. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, in an Iraqi Jewish family, and I was in academia for many years. I got a PhD in cultural studies at UC Davis, wrote a dissertation on pinkwashing. It wasn't called pinkwashing when I started it, but <laughs> gained that name over the years. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here and talking to you guys. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. We've invited you on to talk about your piece or your article in the Jewish Voice for Peace book on anti-Semitism. There are a lot of really interesting pieces, but yours is particularly striking. Um, it's called Anti-Semitism, Palestine, and the Mizrahi Question, which you obviously know the title of, but for people who haven't had a chance to read it, uh, well, they should, first of all, but could you give a brief overview of maybe your thesis? Sure. I, I basically, the main thesis is that conversations about anti-Semitism in the United States in particular really focus on one narrative of Jewish identity and experience and history, which is a European Ashkenazi experience, and that the conversation about anti-Semitism was also really impoverished by a kind of right-wing takeover of the conversation where criticism of Israel was seen as inherently or unilaterally or always anti-Semitic. So that is something that I am constantly frustrated by because the Israeli government has policies that repress Palestinians and also historically has discriminated against Mizrahi and Ethiopian Jews and other minoritized Jews not from Europe. Um, oh, and for those of you who don't know, Mizrahi is an Israeli word sort of manufactured by the state of Israel to describe Jews from North Africa and Arab countries. It's the equivalent of Oriental in English in some ways. It means Eastern. And it's becoming reclaimed as an identity category by folks who were categorized as Mizrahi. It's kind of an umbrella term. Some people don't identify with it, some people do, but I do use it to describe myself and to describe the piece. I mean, part of what it is to be a Mizrahi person or to think about Mizrahi issues is that Ashkenazi history is seen as the history of all Jews everywhere. There's a lot of intense Mizrahi erasure in Jewish communities. And I think that it is also something that, I mean, I live in the U.S., so I feel it particularly acutely in the United States, where there's an understanding of what it is to be a Jewish person that's a normative understanding that often centers on white identity and experiences. 
So Jews of color who identify as um, Ashkenazi are not included in that understanding of Judaism and anti-Semitism, and Mizrahi people are not included in that either. Given that this is a podcast that um, certainly falls in the camp of like radical Jewish territory, I was wondering if you could flesh out the idea of a right-wing kind of white supremacist vision of anti-Semitism that gets reproduced yeah. on the left. Yeah. So our understanding of the history of anti-Semitism is really focused on European history. The Crusades, pogroms, the Holocaust, these sort of benchmarks of Jewish history that get circulated when we talk about anti-Semitism sort of feed into a understanding of anti-Semitism that sees anti-Semitism as an eternal problem that will always exist that we can never combat. And that is why we need the state of Israel to exist, because it is the only place that Jews can be safe. So if you are ascribing to this ideology, the Palestinians become the next iteration of anti-Semitism, right? Where the only reason why there's any kind of conflict in the region is because of anti-Semitism, which is the story that I do hear circulating and did hear growing up. So I think that many people on the left in the United States can see that saying anti-Semitism will never go away and that's why we need Israel can see that as a problem. But I think where it doesn't extend is to thinking about that history in a more critical way and why we accept that history is the history of all Jewish people. And my example there is a really popular zine called The Past Didn't Go Anywhere, which, you know, was written 10 years ago. So I, I do want to say that I mean, sort of taking it as an example of something I hear in conversation, but I don't necessarily want people to sort of focus only on this zine as the problem, right? So the zine has examples like Jewish men in the Middle Ages couldn't own weaponry and couldn't defend their families. And that's an example of anti-Semitism and masculinity, which it is. But I think we should really think about how and when that example actually works as an example for current anti-Semitism. It's a great understanding of what it meant to be a Jewish person in the Middle Ages, but it doesn't actually, for me, translate into my experience as a Mizrahi person or my family's experience as a Mizrahi person, or I would argue the experience of most Jewish people in the United States today. So that's where I see it as sort of being replicated on the left, where there's a very normative understanding of anti-Semitism rather than really critically understanding what the experience of Jews of color and what the experience of Sephardi Mizrahi Jews are and how that might be different. And I mean, in reference to what you're talking about in terms of April Rosenblum zine, uh, the past didn't go anywhere. It, it seems to me like it's indicative of the fact that it's been a very long time that the Jewish left has not been able to offer a coherent analysis that's an alternative to the right-wing mm -hmm. framework for anti-Semitism. And I know that about a decade ago, Jewish Voice for Peace in a different incarnation did put out a book on the same topic. And I remember years ago when I got the book, I, I read through it and I was pretty disappointed because at that point, the entire book was essentially just saying anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Like I was essentially the whole book. Right. And, and I understand right. yeah. why at that moment that felt like what needed to be published. Uh, but it seems like right now it's not just Jewish Voice for Peace. It's also Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. There's also in Canada groups grappling with the same issue. It seems like there is a beginning of voicing a more coherent leftist analysis. And, and I'm wondering why you think this is happening right now. Yeah, that's a great question. So why this moment, I think, is a really interesting question. I mean, I, I don't know that I have a really coherent answer. Even though April Rosenblum's zine was published 10 years ago, I still heard its arguments 
made in a contemporary way, right? Like it had a real, it was a real impactful zine. Like it really had an afterlife. It got passed around in sort of younger Jewish communities and people read it. And many people who I talked to about it really loved it. And then when I read it, I had this completely opposite reaction where I was like, I don't see this in my life. And I actually see a lot of problems with the way that this is articulating anti-Semitism. And I really don't know that I have an answer. It is curious to me that this is something that has been taking up by a bunch of different people in our sort of shared progressive and leftist movements. I will say that I, I think one of the things that happened in JDP is that a lot of our Palestinian allies, especially on campus, we're also asking for us to think about and step up around this issue. So we had the book 10 years ago, which I think served a good purpose at the time. And I think many of the Palestinian students who read it also had a similar experience to you when reading it. Like, yes, great to hear that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. It's a useful and important point. But when somebody accuses me of being anti-Semitic, how do I know I'm not being anti-Semitic? That's a real question. Often we say, like, okay, we'll listen to the people who are most impacted by that oppression. But when the people who are saying they're most impacted are, like, the local Hillel who are saying that your apartheid wall is anti-Semitic, like, it becomes a really confusing experience, I think, for students. So they were also really asking us genuinely to be like, we actually need a little bit more from you than just saying that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Something that you mentioned during the panel was that you felt like one of the shortcomings of the book was that there there weren't uh, as many Palestinian voices as you wanted to see. Um, yeah. You know, given the fact that Palestinians often bear the brunt of this right-wing Zionist framework for understanding anti-Semitism, and people were approached but felt very uncomfortable for obvious reasons, uh, given the climate of weighing in on this. And, and I'm wondering if that tension is something that you could speak to and, and just from the perspective of preparing the book. Yeah. So this also comes from my experience as the academic program manager at JVP. My work is primarily on campus, where I think this is especially acute because campus life is seen as something of a battleground for the Palestine solidarity movement and the pro-Israel advocates. So campus has become this flashpoint for a lot of these questions. And a lot of the Palestinian students that we talked to had a lot of stories I mean, basically, one of the realities of their lives as Palestinian students is that they cannot talk about their experiences. They can't talk about their family's experiences. They cannot research or study the literature and poetry of their people without saying immediately and first, I am not anti-Semitic. Like, it's a kind of clearinghouse thing that they have to say and perpetually return to. And also, there's an intense backlash machine. We have organizations like Canary Mission or AMCA, which is a California-based organization that targets and harasses students, puts them on blacklist, targets them on Twitter, says that the fact that they showed up to a rally or joined Students for Justice in Palestine or posted something critical of Bibi Netanyahu means that they're anti-Semitic terrorists. And for some of these students who are international students who have family in Palestine, these kinds of statements online can actually have real damages to their lives. So that was the climate that we were trying to get people to talk about anti-Semitism in. And we could have done more to do outreach and to really include folks. Like, I see this as a fault that's on our side, right? Like, that we should have done more to outreach and should have done more to include those voices in the book. So I don't want to make it seem like you know, we asked a million people and they all said no. Like, we could have done more to make that something that happened in the book. 
Moving a little bit back to just the general theme of anti-Semitism and, and the right's dominance over defining it, um, David and I have spent a bunch of time on the show talking about anti-Semitism, trying to think about anti-Semitism. And one thing that keeps coming up for me is just whether or not the framework is redeemable, given that the experience of persecution or, or xenophobia of different Jews in different places in different times is so distinct that it, sometimes it just feels like maybe we need to throw the old framework out and use a new one. Um, is this something that you've thought about before? No, I mean, I think there's some truth to that, right? Like I, coming out of feminist and queer movements and theories, I feel real itchy around essentialism, if, if that makes sense. So like any kind of understanding of a system of oppression that says all X are oppressed in the same way throughout time and forever, which I think has happened. I mean, in feminist movements, there is a theory of like all women have been oppressed in the same way throughout time. And we're going to look at all these different places throughout history the same way. And the problem with that is that it really flattens history and it makes it equivalent. So the experiences of a white woman in the United States is seen as equivalent to someone who's working in Maquiladora and on the border between the U.S. and Mexico and that their oppression is somehow the same. It doesn't account for other forms of power. I feel similarly when we talk about anti-Semitism, when I hear this analysis that says anti-Semitism is the same throughout time and space, it's like, well, that doesn't quite, that's not a full accounting of how power works in the world. And whenever we talk about anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish feeling or anti-Jewish oppression, we need to think about power as the central thing that we're trying to unpack. And that power just doesn't work focused on one thing at a time, right? Part of what intersectionality does is that it thinks about power and its intersections. So gender and race and class and religion and ethnicity all intersect with each other and power works through all of these vectors. So we cannot sort of take one strand and say, this is how power works for everyone forever, because you're erasing all the other ways that power works. And if folks want to read this book, uh, either as a physical copy or, or online as a PDF, how can they find more info about it? You can go to onantisemitism.com, and there you will find a list of our contributors and the table of contents and a link to buy the book on Haymarket. You can also go on haymarketbooks.org and Google anti-Semitism, and we're the first thing that comes up. And I think right now it's 30% off. So that's exciting. And if you're a JVP member, it's 40% off. And there's also an ebook there. I don't think the ebook is discounted, but the physical copy is, is discounted. So yeah, please go buy the book and decide to continue this conversation. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It was really great to get to talk with you. Thank you guys so much. The weather is nice. Now we can get into the streets. It's time for Square. 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 We meet again. Oh, we're like meeting Square. No, we're meeting each other in the Square segment. Oh, so you're addressing me, not this segment. Yes. What's up? Um, the same as before. But I feel like we have to frame this this segment as like a different space, you know? Like we're in this kind of like Shkoyach zone, if oh, you Oh, yeah, will. back to your Shkoyach zone thing. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever brought that up before. Yes, you have. Um, so welcome back to the Shkoyach zone. 
Very excited to be here. Uh, but Sam, you come all this way. Yep. Uh, what is your shkoyak that you want to share with us? My shkoyak is actually related to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, ah. which is where you grew up. Technically Thornhill. And where you have many of your roots. Oh, did you find that pavement where I wrote my initials on it? I did, I did. It was very embarrassing. I wish I'd written something so much smarter. Yes, then DZ. Every time I go past, I'm like, oh, that was a mistake. That concrete's not going to be wet again. Point of the story is I was hustling to the bus station, dragging the wheelie thing. I think it's called a suitcase. Yeah, I believe so. As I'm going towards the terminal, I I finish this 10-block journey. The noise of the wheels on on the wheelie thing are starting to drive me mad. And I look up at a sign. What did you see? I saw an advertisement, as they say. In Britain. Yes. On said advertisement was a picture of the skyline of Toronto City. Toronto City? With a fellow's face on the body of an animal, a fellow by the name of Brad J. Lamb, (laughs) who is hawking his realty business. His head is on a lamb's body with a suit. Now, my biggest problem here is, okay... Brad Lamb has a last name named Lamb. He's trying to make a lamb joke, right? But he puts a suit on the lamb and then talks about his negotiation skills. Like, if you're like, he's one bad negotiator, that's a lamb joke, right? We get it. You wouldn't say you're a bad negotiator. That's why. No, but like bad in like a 90s way, you know? Like, like it's he's, good. He's wearing like a leather jacket with like slick back hair. Oh, that's actually a good ad pitch. You should send it to him. Yeah, definitely. But it just, it's such a weird picture of a human head on a lamb body. Yeah, it kind of dips into the uncanny valley. I'm looking at this for the probably 10th time today. Lamb Brad, if you will, like the lamb version of Brad has a briefcase next to it, but he has four hooves. Like, how did the briefcase get there? So your anti-shkoyak is to him and, and the billboard? Anyone at Brad J. Lamb Realty. Hardy anti-shkoyak to Brad J. Lamb. Well, I accept your anti-shkoyak. David, tell me you're going to be bringing in some positivity. Unfortunately not. I also have an anti-shkoyak. Uh, to set up my anti-shkoyak for today, I have to give a little bit of context, specifically around a friend of ours named Moish. Lovely man. Montreal institution, if you will. Yiddish professor. Lovely human. He has taken us all under his wings, if you will, and we're all super lucky to know him. So what does Moish have to do with today's Shkoyach? I feel like another important piece of information about Moish is that he's a lot older than we are, and he's a longtime Jewish anarchist. And in his conversations with us, he mentioned that he thinks we, on the left in general, and the Jewish left in particular, should be talking more about capitalism. I have been present for many of those conversations. (laughs) So I'm, I'm in the spirit of those conversations with Moish. My anti-shkoyach today goes to the five men that now have as much wealth as half the world's population. Whoa, whoa, comrade, relax. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The thing I want to mention here is that I noticed a similar statistic this time last year. The thing that made me want to give the anti-shkoyach today is that Oxfam released a publication last year that said that there were 62 people that had as much wealth as 50% of the world. And in just over a year, that went to eight people. And then uh, as of yesterday, I think it went to five. Wow. It's pretty hard to wrap your head around that kind of a statistic. Like you can hear it intellectually, but to think about it, it's, it's quite overwhelming. Um, can I guess who's on the list? Oh, please. I have a list of the wealthiest eight, but I couldn't find any updated information on who dropped off that list. Huh. So I can tell you who was on the eight, but I can't tell you if they were on the five. Okay. Can we see how many of the eight I can get? Okay. Facebook. You mean Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah. Got it. Amazon. Jeff Bezos. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Uh, Buffett. Got it. 
Um, Microsoft. Bill Gates. Yeah. Got it. You're four uh, out of five. Uh, ooh, one sec. Oh, Carlos Slim. Carlos Slim, hello. Yeah. You got it. <laughs> yeah. The only other three in the eight was Michael Bloomberg, ooh. Amancio Ortega Gona, and Lawrence Ellison. I'm very impressed. You got you got it five and five guesses. Well, I got five out of eight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's very impressive. That's not what is five out of eight in terms of percentages. Well, the thing is, it's very possible yeah, that yeah. you guessed the top five. That's fair. Why am I minimizing my accomplishments, David? I don't know. My shrink would not be happy. No, this is an anti-Skoyach uh, to both those people, but more broadly, the system of global capitalism. <laughs> and and in some ways, you're also giving a Skoyach to Moish for helping you think about this a little bit more. Yeah, Skoyach as always to Moish. Um, I have to say, I'm really impressed that you got five and five guesses. What can I say? It's almost like there's some sort of conspiracy. I will neither confirm nor deny. Some sort of global conspiracy involving the world's wealthiest men. Uh, David, I've got to say, I mean, so we've been talking on Facebook about kind of a bigger Jewish podcast network, but we asked people to give us suggestions for names for the <laughs> network. And so many of them were like conspiracy related. Yeah. And although that's not the tone that we're going for, they really brought a smile to my face. Much appreciated. Yeah. Keep on keeping on internet. So that's our show for today. We'd highly recommend reading the On Anti-Semitism book that we've referenced multiple times on the show today. There are a lot of chapters from a lot of very smart people who we did not talk with for the show because we could not talk with everybody. Which is not even possible. Uh, so get yourself a copy of the book if you can. On antisemitism.com. Terrific website. I can't believe that's actually the website. I know. Which now brings us to the bulletin board portion of this podcast. It's totally rigged though because we're the only ones that put notices on the board. <laughs> That's true. It's a it's a rigged bulletin board. First on this metaphorical bulletin board is voice memos. Please send them to us. If you enjoyed listening to the voice memo this week, you might understand the value and benefit of sharing ideas and information about actions and events, etc. So send us a voice memo around a minute with your name and where you're calling from to trafepodcast at gmail.com. And David, what is the link to our Patreon? Patreon.com slash Podcast. Merci beaucoup. And finally, if you enjoy the show, give us a positive rating on iTunes. Or uh, Apple Podcast, as it's now known, I think. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Major thanks to C. Lavery, Kira Page, Cadence O'Neill, Claire Hertig, Sack Syndrome, So Called, and to our staff rabbi, Ariana Katz. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Trafe Podcast, T-R-E-Y-F, and send us comments, suggestions, hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. See you in two weeks. Sam? Yes, David? What do you think of ghosts? I don't think ghosts exist. What about boogums? Mm, well, if I don't know what it is, then I'm going to have to say no. What about gremlins? No, don't know what they are necessarily. Like the movie Gremlins? 
Haven't seen it. Gremlins 2? Nope. Um, what about Gremlins 3? I don't... Is there one? I don't know. It would just make no sense. If I was a ghost, I wouldn't stay in one house. It makes no sense that people are restricted to one house, right? Who made the arbitrary rule that you can't leave the house that you died in? I mean, that's the rules of ghosting. I don't know, but it isn't always the rules of ghosting. Take it up with the ghost judge. Uh, yeah. <laughs>